Hi, folks. This is the Gamers with Glasses show, and I'm Christian Haynes, one of the editors of the website, gamerswithglasses.com. Gamers with Glasses is a gathering place for fans, scholars, artists, and developers who like to play and think about games. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Roger Whitson. Hello. And our special guest, Amanda Lee Castro. Hi. Uh, Dr. Amanda Lee Castro is Emerging and Digital Literacy Instructional Designer at the University of Pennsylvania Library. She's responsible for providing instructional design support around emerging technology and digital literacies. Some of her recent publications include uh, Composition and Big Data, available for pre-order from University of Pittsburgh Press, and a chapter in Hybrid Pedagogy, available in paperback. So this week, our special topic is platform and hardware accessibility in gaming, including the challenges and rewards of teaching video games in higher education. We're going to start off as we always do, which is with the games we're playing. So Roger, do you mind starting us off? Sure. Uh, I've been playing the new Subnautica Below Zero. I actually haven't, I didn't play the first Subnautica, so I probably will play that after this. Um, and I haven't always been very excited about survival games, um, but I've been enjoying this. I've been enjoying um, building uh new devices, finding things on the on, on the seafloor. The whole idea of depth and the things that you find at the bottom of the ocean is really interesting to me. I mean, of course, um, Alinda Chang would, would remind us that this is definitely extractive capitalism at work, <laughs> sort of par excellence, right? But um, so it definitely is that. Um, I, I've been really fascinated by these questions um, that were in the first Subnautica, but then also this game um, of it being potentially a horror game. And this whole question of like certain people, not just like becoming frightened at the monsters, like there are certain predators which are there, which is interesting, but then also just this whole idea of the ocean as this sort of wide open kind of uh, space that causes some people, not real vertigo, but kind of the sense of like, oh, I'm you know, caught in this vast open uh, void of nothingness kind of thing. Um, I haven't so much experienced that yet, but it's an interesting idea as I continue to explore the different parts of it. So the, the two things I think I know about this game is one is that it seems to have more of a story or a narrative uh, mm. than the first one. Is that right, Roger? Yeah. I mean, I haven't played the first one, so I can't compare, but it definitely has a pretty pretty serious storyline which kind of annoys me i kind of don't want to play the storyline <laughs> i kind you of just want, want to freedom yeah i just want to make stuff which you can do i didn't pick that you there's another um another way to play uh, i'm currently playing survival which is sort of the main storyline game but yeah it is it does seem after all because it is it is kind of it gives new meaning to the whole term open world game right because with an open world game you're supposed to be able to do whatever you want and this is that way too, but I would say like the depth creates this whole new dimension to like, you know, exploration and things like that. That's where I think that Subnautica really works is trying to find um, new places and 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 being being sort of curious about something you see off in the distance and kind of going over to see what that is. One of the problems is that I think that the that the the storyline can kind of detract a little bit from that. So. It would be cool if um, it was more, I don't know, like um, based in kind of spontaneity and like uh, 
and things like that. So, yeah, I think one of the things that I learned about the studio a little while ago, I think actually from the podcast Rebel FM, which has a one of the co-hosts actually just joined the studio that made it, um, which I think is Unknown Worlds. But they actually like part of the impetus for the first one was that after the Newton, Connecticut shooting, uh, the head of the studio decided that he didn't want to make games where shooting or violence were the main mechanics. And so actually when they were making uh, the first uh, Subnautica, I think the only thing they knew for sure when they first went into pre-production was that they wanted a pacifistic or like nonviolent gameplay mechanism and they just kind of went yeah. from there which is sort of interesting to me you know replacing it is it verbs. is interesting i think i think you'd have to like really question what you mean by violence right like in a way because certainly it doesn't have like a shooting kind of situation where you're blowing people away kind of thing uh but uh it you know like it is about uh you know fighting away predators and you get at one point you get like a like a knife and you're um cutting open things and so there is a i would say i would argue i mean it's a lighter that's quote-unquote lighter violence but like the whole context of you know just sort of using the earth for your own kind of kind of gain is is i think the central point of survival games and so um yeah, I just think it's I think it's interesting to really question that. I would really like what to do we see mean the violence? virtual reality version of this game. It sounds like it'd be very conducive to an immersive environment. From the what yeah. you're describing, like seeing things in the distance and deciding to walk over to them. And narrative games, I think, always play better in VR, but also like the close relationship with your environment, right? That's epitomized in VR because you're you're in it. Um, so yeah. I would like to see this translated to VR if it hasn't been already. I think the first one was turned into VR, if I'm not mistaken, Christian. Do you know? Yeah. I don't. I feel like I heard something like rumblings about it, but I don't know. I also know it seems like yeah. So it seems like folks have been able to do yeah. that, but I'm not sure if they've I, done I it. I see that it's for the HTC Vive or the Oculus. Yeah. So. It'll it makes me wonder, yeah. I I have, so like one of my problems with VR is basically because of my, um, I don't know if you know, I'm deaf on, on my right side. And so like, I've lost all of my balance and hearing on that side. And so it's extra uh, bizarre for me to just get used to a VR headset. I have a lot of the vertigo experience that some people have pointed to. And I can imagine a game like this, especially, um, creating that kind of problem um, because there are moments where you're, you know, you're diving down um, into like an underwater cavern um, and there are all of these twists and turns and it's very easy to get lost and not know which way is up. And um, so I can imagine that being heightened in a VR environment. So I guess it, that's one uh, warning that I would give to people who have had those problems in the past. And potentially. we can talk lots about that because I have, so many thoughts about VR and accessibility because I'm really studying it deeply and I'm trying to build our resources thoughtfully around accessibility. So I've got I've got lots to say about that when we start. Why don't we just jump right into it actually? <laughs> Why don't we okay. talk about a little bit about how both you interact with VR just in your 
personal and professional life, but also about how you introduce others to it and maybe some of the challenges or interesting experiences you had with that? Yeah, so I started working in VR in 2016 when the New York Times sent a Google Cardboard with their Sunday edition. So I was living in New York, you know, I got the Sunday actual paper Sunday edition of the New York Times on my doorstep and they had a Google Cardboard in it and all of the print articles were paired with a VR experience. So Mm. you read the article and then you immersed yourself in um, a visual version. Um, First of all, I love when old and new media are paired together. I think it's incredibly effective for teaching um, and it's a great way of orienting yourself to a new technology, right? It's skeomorphs, right? Mm -hmm. It's skeomorphs Mm -hmm. epitomized when you get to, um, when you get to really have an old media translated into a new um, experience. So based on that, I contacted the New York Times and I asked if they could send me a set to, to use in my digital publishing class. And they graciously did. <laughs> and in return, I gave them my assignments that I used um, for the New York um, Times education section online. So what I did was in my digital publishing class, I had the students read the articles and do the New York Times experiences. And then they were, you know, to come up with their own um, VR experience And we looked at this through the lens of empathy. Why? Because empathy is incredibly controversial. It's a a topic that is endlessly up for debate. I mean, dating back from the very origins of the word until today, Paul Bloom's work, uh, Janet Murray's work against empathy, and all of the um, early 2000 um, kind of slew of articles about empathy, like, you know, millennials have no empathy, Silicon Valley has no empathy, right? <laughs> you pick your category, they lack empathy, right? It's been kind of a buzzword that's gotten a lot of attention. So we were looking at media and empathy and how media can, can create uh, genuine or authentic or less authentic or even maybe um, purposely misleading, right? Empathetic experiences. Um, and it went over really, really, really well. My students, um, had the awe and delight of experiencing a new uh, media, but also, and this was what was most important for me, we have a tendency to be desensitized to traditional forms of media. Uh, You know, you're watching the news and you scroll on your phone and you're watching a movie and you're also doing 10 other things. No one gives 100% of their attention to the media they're ingesting anymore. But with VR, you have to. You actually don't have a choice. It's attached to your head, Mm -hmm. right? You Mm -hmm. can't look away. And that's both a positive and a negative thing, right? But it's an irony about the media, isn't it? Like, it is. You know, it's the most immersive media, and yet it's the one maybe where we can't help but notice the equipment. Yes. Um, <laughs> although I have to say like it, when you, when you really get into a game and you're like an hour into a game, you forget that you're in a headset to the point where you hurt yourself or you trip over your couch, you punch the wall, right? These things, because you forget that you're in a real space, um, which is why now all of them come with those the, you press the button and you can see your room. This is very important. So I don't trip over my cat, right? I have a living oh, being yeah. that might be underfoot. So, <laughs> you know, you've got to, you've got to re- remind yourself that something is in your room. Um, that's not in the virtual space, but, and I have had students right in my classroom, punch the classroom wall, right? Oh my gosh. Wow. (laughs) Um, Because you're, you know, you, you get very into the game and classrooms don't have unlimited space. So sometimes I have to put a student in a small area where they're, they're near physical objects. 
side note, but yes. Um, so the, the complete immersion and the inability to multitask while you're doing it, um, kind of forces students to grapple with the content in a way that is not <clears throat> the same as showing them a film, right. Um, or, or a show, um, you both asked me to provide a non-gaming example. I love showing the Black Mirror episode San Junipero, which is oh. Emmy uh, award-winning episode about um, virtual reality as an alternative to death, right? Instead of dying and your, and your mind and body no longer existing, you upload into a virtual space where you can basically time travel. You can be in various decades and um, um, you can choose to have personal relationships continue, et cetera. Um, so that's, that, that TV show is very powerful. And my students react uh, to the themes of that very strongly. And they, I think they have a lot of opinions about that, that television show, especially because of how representative and, and diverse the cast is, but it's, they're still, it's still a TV show and they're still like doing their laundry or cooking dinner or talking to their friends or texting or on social media or all those other things while they're watching it. But when you put them in a VR experience, they can't, they cannot do anything, but under, try to understand that virtual space, which takes a lot of work, right? It takes a lot mm -hmm. of work to explore, to orient yourself to a virtual space. And it's work that you can't do partially, you have to commit to it. Um, which is Roger, what I think you were saying is that idea of like getting lost is real, mm. right? The mm. idea of getting lost, being disoriented is real. And some people have a very visceral negative e experience initially because they don't like that feeling. I mean, not a lot of us don't like the feeling of being disoriented or lost or not knowing where to go. Um, and I think that VR has gotten really good at giving lighting and sound direction. In fact, I think the best editing being done bar none is VR sound and video, uh, sound and, um, and lighting editing. I mean, it's mm. a whole new ball game. If you haven't, you should watch the John Favreau videos from how he's creating all of the Disney universes in VR. So all of the Mandalorian was shot in VR. All of the Lion King was shot in VR. Um, all of the jungle book was shot in VR and they have real actual traditional video equipment, but they build the word world virtually. So you have the camera technicians oh, wow. in headsets, but using their regular cameras to film the world and they build the world. And you're talking about like hundreds of acres of space. They build the virtual. Oh, so that's how film. they, that's how they like can see if they're like digital graphics that they will install it. Like they're, it's actually when they're filming, I'm, I'm thinking. No, I'm they film in the they film in the virtual right. space, so, so they I'm can see different angles and different shots. I'm imagining like so. So the what 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 I initially thought of is like old green screen technology, where like you're like either you know shooting something from the Avengers or Star Wars, and like all of it is green, and there are these actors running around in green screen, which is what's happening. But I, are you saying that like now they're using? Uh, VR to like insert from the perspective of the camera person, like insert the what that's going to look like kind of post-production. No, so, so that pre, they can so get pre-production, they build the yeah. entire world in virtual space. Right. So if you imagine, you know, if you imagine the Lion King, because I think it's pretty that's an easy one, right? So you have like the savannah and you have the cliffs and you have, you know, um, 
the gorge, right? You have all mm-hmm. of these very clear settings. They actually built it all in VR and they modeled what a hundred years in that space would look like. So they have, they have the grass growing, they have the water slowly disintegrating the rocks. They have the, you know, the wheat going from green to brown, right? <laughs> they have the, mm. the trees growing and, and the leaves falling off the trees. They do the whole simulation for like a hundred years in the space for hundreds of miles in every direction. And then the camera team actually films just like they, they would if they were on set in Africa. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yes. So these worlds are incredible. These worlds are endless, right? They're endless space that you can navigate. And while not a lot of that has ported to the game world yet because it's so expensive. And I mean, we're talking Disney here. Um, But I think once we get to the place where some of the most popular open world games are ported to VR, we're going to have some serious video game addiction happening because you're never going to leave, right? There's going to be so much to explore. There's going to be so much to do and so much to see. And the simulations are so authentic and believable that it's going to be incredible, right? Once we get to that point. Right now, you can see some really good examples. I know, I know Roger's going to like this one. Frankenstein VR, (laughs) terrible game. One of the worst games I've ever played. Terrible gameplay, but aesthetically gorgeous. Um, You are in a 19th century greenhouse um, surrounded by water. You have 19th century tools, um, medical tools, medical equipment, um, populating the space and other interesting artifacts. My favorite part about the game is that you find archival documents. So you find letters from uh, Mary Shelley to Percy Shelley, letters from Mary Shelley to Lord Byron, um, and other like drafts of Frankenstein and things like that in the game that you actually pick up and read and interact with. Um, and you, it's you. There's like a portrait of Mary Shelley that ha- is hanging on the wall. All of these really interesting archival items throughout mm. the game. Um, it's too bad that the gameplay itself is just so bad (laughs) yeah Um, so the concept of the game is that you go around collecting body parts and you put them in a cauldron to make you know a cyborg body and there's this strange steampunk like gremlin that follows you around yelling at you it's really (laughs) the gameplay is awful (laughs) the gameplay is awful but the aesthetics are beautiful so i did this experiment uh So in 2018, this was the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein, 200th birthday, right, (laughs) of Frankenstein. And um, as part of Frankenreads, which is an international effort to celebrate uh, Frankenstein, I had my students all read Frankenstein. They played through Frankenstein VR, and then their final assignment was to design an extended reality game that was better than... Frankenstein VR that was more authentic to the novel and their final projects were simply astounding. Um, My personal favorite was one uh, called Did She Do It? Which was the trial of Justine in VR. Oh, right. Right. So it was very much about class war, about gender war. And you are a jury member in the and you, you know, Victor comes and, you know, he's upset and you're um, put in the position to make a decision in that trial which I think is a fabulous um, and shows kind of think, the, the close reading of my students, right. To pick that scene and really dig into it. So this is, this is really interesting because I think what you're doing here that is, I think would be really benefit to our listeners is like, you're showing like, 
you know, some people, like a lot of people have played on the Oculus Rift. They played these various games um, in a VR space. Um, but now you're kind of showing, well, maybe these be ways that we can teach students different parts of this novel, right? Um, so uh, like, like going back to this question of like Frankenstein, do you see something in particular that enhances their understanding of the novel by sort of experiencing it in VR space? Yes. So I, th- I students are very used to adaptations, right? Frankenstein has been made into every possible format, right? I mean, I'm from The Simpsons to mm-hmm. Bride of Frankenstein to Broadway, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's Young Frankenstein, right? There's endless adaptations of Frankenstein. So they're already used to the idea of kind of remixing the novel into a new form, but virtual reality, because it's novel, because it's innovative, because it's emerging, kind of gives them the license or the freedom to dream big and dream without those references that have already been done, right? So, mm-hmm. and there, it's also this idea of expansive space and expansive um, boundaries, right? So like, how can you use this new medium to rethink the novel in ways that will impact your audience or perhaps highlight like the trial of Justine parts of the novel that have kind of been overlooked in these mm-hmm. other forms of media. Mm-hmm. So because we do, we had this conversation about empathy, I'm always talking about empathy through um, immersion. This You can see why the trial of Justine would be an incredibly empathetic immersion, right? Mm-hmm. Thinking about mm-hmm. that character and the experiences of that character, even though it's such a small blip <laughs> in the narrative. Yeah. So I, yeah, I was, and- it really, really brought, I thought it really demonstrated how students could take a, an incredible close reading of one scene of a novel and extract it, you know? Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. I think one of the things that occurred to me while you were saying that was uh, there's something I'm imagining to be very powerful about actually seeing kind of this 18th century trial and process, right? And seeing um, how unfair it is to Justine, where in in the novel, I think we're so focused on Victor. I mean, it's from Victor's point of view and it's about his guilt and blah, blah, blah. And Justine just happens to be there. You don't really see kind of uh, what it must've been like to be there, which is, you know, kind of a different experience, I think. Absolutely. And actually I also had a group of forensic science majors in the class that ended up doing the murder of Elizabeth as from the perspective of like a forensic scientist who's trying to solve the case. That's cool. So you, I mean, this is very much a trigger warning VR (laughs) experience because (laughs) it's, you know, obviously the death of a young woman, but you go into the bedroom and you see Elizabeth and you have to like figure out how she died, which is the, uh, you know, it is the climax of the novel, right? It is the, it's kind of the most important moment of the novel, arguably, um, but taken from this modern perspective of forensics, I mean, you know, CSI, all those, these shows that are so incredible, incredibly popular, um, but using it as a lens to understand the novel better than motivations of the characters better. And again, that, that empathy piece, um, it was, to me, it's just so innovative. And they took their expertise in forensic science and mm. applied it to literature. And you don't think those things, things go together typically, right? right? right, right. You don't right. think about it's teaching really awesome. literature through forensic science. But yeah. yet it worked so beautifully. Yeah, cool. Maybe to expand the conversation a little bit, um, with VR still included, 
you know, there's that fantasy, and I think you alluded to it, uh, Amanda, and, you know, you see it in the Black Mirror, and I think a couple of episodes at least, we see it in things like Ready Player One, of this, like, VR addiction where people replace essentially a really shitty dystopian present or future uh, with some more fantastic <laughs> version. And, you know, I don't know, it's I just- guess the... I guess the government's handing out VR headsets or something in a kind of bread and circuses way of like, you know, don't pay attention to where you actually are. So Christian, Uh, it's kind of uncanny how these things are lining up because it's like we're entering into this dystopian world and oh my gosh, VR is getting better. Yeah. But this oh, is, so this is where I wanted so to many start. times where I thought about between climate change and the pandemic. Yeah. Like when is the day that we're all just going to live in VR? Because it but, could be tomorrow and it would solve a lot of our problems. Right. But I, but, I, but I think it's less a question of when than of if. Right. And that's the thing is that, you know, people have kind of continuously deferred VR's arrival every generation of new consoles. Right. This is the moment VR is going to arrive in every single decade it's been pushed back um and the technology has gotten better and better but what hasn't changed as much as people would maybe like it to are things that range from people's living spaces to private property laws to like questions of how we arrange our families like i don't have a vr headset and part of the reason i don't have a vr headset is frankly just wouldn't fit into like my familial setup and my living arrangements. Um, And at some point, maybe I'll work it out, but it just doesn't fit into my life right now. And so there's just questions of accessibility. And, you know, I was thinking of this in terms of like, okay, I'm going to teach a video game studies class for the first time uh, spring 2022. This is how far in advance we have to think of these things. And I'm thinking about what games I'm going to have them play and how I'm going to have them access these games, um, would I be able to do VR? Will I be able to do VR in spring 2022 with a pandemic still potentially looming? Because I'm not sure I wanna deal with shared headsets and I certainly don't wanna have them purchase headsets of their own. Maybe certain kinds of AR games will be more accessible and do some of the same things. Um, But you know, I'm thinking of like, okay, Maybe I'll have them do a cloud streaming services. Maybe xCloud, you know, is right now in the process of transitioning over to having the Series X be uh, the machines that they're computing um, through. So presumably the frame rate drops and things like that are going to get less uh, of an issue. If that is internet in State College, Pennsylvania, in the center of Pennsylvania, holds up well enough for cloud computing to work uh, for people's main gaming. Um, and I've so got, all yeah, these I, I can tell you how I've done it in the past and I can tell you how I'm building towards the future, yeah. right? So first and foremost, the most accessible VR technology is the Google Cardboard. Now you can make these, you know, those soda, the cardboard soda containers you put in your fridge, the long ones, right? The whole case yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of seltzer mm-hmm. water, right? You cut off the ends, you add lenses and a magnet and you have a Google Cardboard. This is what most elementary schools do. The, the yeah. build your own Google Cardboard method, right? Um, Aside from having that, which is a really fun kinesthetic way of teaching students how to build their own, right? It's a fun classroom activity. An actual Google Cardboard costs $5, five, right? And all of the law firms around me are giving out the plastic ones as their like swag. So you you can usually find a plastic version or one that's a little more substantial for under 10, 
the dollar stores around me all have them. I've picked up two at the dollar stores that are plastic and have a head strap, right? So you can really find cheap or free headsets to use with your mobile device. There are some that are absolutely terrible that I could talk about why I hate them, <laughs> right? I can talk to you about the ones I don't like and why I don't like them. But the number one thing to look for if you're actually going to invest money is the ability to adjust the distance between the eyes. So all the, all the good ones, HTC Vive, um, HP, uh, Oculus, all versions of Oculus have the ability to change how far apart your eyes are. Okay. And this is actually the cause of sickness, not gender. There's been some very significant data produced on this. So they were saying that that there's a gender breakdown on based on who experiences motion sickness. Hmm. Um, and they found it's actually much, much more racially and culturally based because of the distance people's eyes are apart, right? Hmm. So okay. almost all of the new headsets have a very wide range for that. And um, also for, this is gamers with glasses, <laughs> right? Also <laughs> being able to fit your glasses in to the headset, right? right? right. So I always, always, always prepare, whether it's students or faculty, or people off the street, right? If you're doing a workshop or doing a session of VR, tell people to wear contacts if they can, right? It's always going to be preferable. If you can wear contacts, if you or if you don't need glasses for close-up vision, if you're wearing mm -hmm. glasses only for to see far away, right? To not wear your glasses or to wear your contacts that day. Um, if you're going to be doing headset work. There's also been amazing work with uh using head strap extenders. So there's a really great work about hairstyles, right? And hair texture and how that doesn't, isn't compatible with a lot of the headsets, but you can easily make them out of cloth or 3D prints in your maker mm -hmm. lab at your university mm -hmm. or local library, right? Um, as strap extenders so that it can adjust to people's head size or hair style or to accommodate glasses if necessary. The other thing that's really important is movement. So that's one of the biggest deterrents to accessibility. The headsets can be heavy. You need neck strength. You need mobility in your neck and upper body. Um, and you need either a chair that rolls or the ability to walk around, right? So these are all things that you have to think through in advance and tell your participants to prepare for, right? So I tell students, for example, like, Think through your hairstyle, think through, you know, your footwear, right? All of these things are consideration before you're going to do VR. It is a physical experience. Mm -hmm. And then as far as motion sickness, it's the same thing as if you were going to ride on a boat, right? You, if you need to have your motion sickness band around your wrist or take your Dramamine, you want to be well hydrated. And I actually provide pregnancy candies, the ginger candies <laughs> to take for like oh, anti-nausea. Yeah. Um, you can find them on Amazon for $5, a huge bucket yeah. of them, right? Um, it's really more of a placebo effect, right? It's a ginger candy with some vitamin D in it, but it does like for people who kind of just like feel sick in a car sometimes, but aren't like actual, don't have actual motion sickness syndrome, right. it will work perfectly fine. Um, as into, and then when you're talking about like germs, right? Almost all of these headsets can be wiped down, yeah. you know, with a Lysol cloth, but they also make, um, VR masks, right? That they, they make like cloth masks, similar to the ones we've all been wearing for the past two years, but that fit around the eye section. And what we're investing in at the University of Pennsylvania and many other universities and medical institutions are, is a clean box. It's a UV clean system. So you put the headset into yeah. the UV box for 60 seconds and it kills all the germs. Um, this has been used for medical equipment 
gosh, for decades, right? Um, so there's lots of things you can do for, for sanitization. I always bring hand sanitizer and Lysol wipes when I'm doing any activity in the classroom from when we make clay tablets to when we do VR because you have people sharing equipment, but it's just common sense kind of stuff. The biggest deterrent for me that's, that's the next thing that we have to solve is for people who have vision and hearing impairment, like we started this conversation talking about, um, who were, for whom headsets and headphones will never work efficiently. And for me, that's solved by VR caves and geodomes. So you can now get an inflatable geodome, right? Like that you blow up like a like an inflatable tube or like an air mattress, right? Um, or you can get a, you know, like a pop-up tent version of a dome, or you can, you know, build a three-wall set of um, 3D pro projectors um, or screens. And to me, that solves the most of our accessibility mm. pro problems is having it be room scale VR where you're mm. not wearing a headset at all, but you're immersed into the actual space. What I love about this discussion is that, you know, it suggests a couple of things about virtual reality, AR um, and XR more generally, which is one, like contrary to the myth that we've been getting since at least the 1980s and especially in cyberpunk fictions, like the body doesn't go away, right? In fact, <laughs> like what we're getting is a nice, like if not seamless and a continuity ideally between your body and the kinds of things your brain's doing, your vision's doing when you're playing virtual reality, your hearing's doing, right? Like, and you have to think about the body, you have to think about, in fact, the re that's probably one of the biggest reasons it hasn't taken off is that we're still trying to figure out how to make it fit or really customized to so many different kinds of bodies. And then the other thing that I think is great is that virtual reality might not look like what we thought it is going to look like, right? Like not just because Gabe Newell, you know, CEO of Valve is out there talking about how they're gonna like skip past these things in general and go straight to like neuro implants. You know, that's what he says he's working on at the very least. <laughs> um, so the next Half-Life, whenever it comes out, probably in 20, you know, 55 or something is probably just going to be a chip that you insert in your head. Uh, but also because of things like blow up geodomes and things that really sound like they hark back to like the 19th century and stereoscopy yeah. and all kinds I of- I have a stereoscope like right behind me on my dresser. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's so- I want to go back to your original question about what game are you playing, right? You said what you, we yeah, never, yeah, I never yeah. answered this question, but right now I'm really interested in super hot VR for this exact question of embodiment. So if you've played super hot on a console, you get one experience and that experience is detached from you yourself as the player. When you play super hot VR, you, and I'm, I'm trigger warning your audience here, trigger warning for your audience. Please turn this off. If you're sensitive to self-harm, um, you start super hot VR by shooting yourself in the head. Um, when you do that in VR, it is a very embodied experience. Oh, one that wow. is very different than a console simulation of that experience. Mm. And super hot VR is meta in the way that I love meta. <laughs> it makes you think about the environment as you're mm -hmm. playing it, right? Mm -hmm. Like it makes you think about the big questions about virtual reality as you're playing it, right? So what is real? What is not real? What am I feeling? What am I not feeling? What is my role in this world? 
can mm. I, can I get out of it or not? <laughs> right. Like, am I, am I in control of my experience or not? Um, who is in control of my experience? Um, these questions are what makes super hot VR for me. And this is not a new game, right? I'm not, this is, this is, not, a, this is yeah. not the most relevant game. I realize that, but when, I can't when did, stop thinking about it. It's really interesting. When did, when did the VR version of it come out? Was it just oh my gosh, a year years or ago? So? No, oh, really? Ago. Yeah. Maybe like five years ago, even. Huh. Um, but so I've been cooking up this experiment that I am hoping to execute this year where we are going to have um, someone playing through the console version and someone playing through the VR version with sensors so we can see the difference in their brain activity. Oh, wow. That's cool. So I've been working with Penn Medicine on this idea and um, doing like a public demonstration of this where you will actually like see the brain activity on a screen from each player while they're playing through these two different um I don't want to say two different versions, but you know what I'm like, there's two different experiences of the same game. Um, and this was inspired by an experiment that I saw at Stevenson University where they had um, someone playing the piano and they are, you know, the sensors were on their brains. And they were, you were watching the brain activity of the person playing the piano. And then they had someone listening, right? An audience member mm. listening to the music with sensors. And we could see the difference between someone listening to music and someone playing music. Yeah. So that's my idea is what is the, what is the actual like neuroscience level difference between playing a console game and, and being in a virtual game? Hmm. Can't stop thinking about it. It's got me up all night. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least games are keeping you up all night in some fashion. <laughs> right. It could be something else. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but that's, these are questions that we have. I think that we should be talking about and we should be answering and we should be thinking about because listen we've been talking about violence in video games since the beginning of time but this is this is a new i think this is a new and interesting aspect of it and i think that there's very convincing medical evidence that that these experiences are different and um so at the university of pennsylvania we have an amazing vr um i'm going to throw some terminology at you so there's um there's vr that specifically therapeutic VR. So it's yeah, VR right. that you use for medical purposes. Mm -hmm. um, the most probably well-known is PTSD, right? A lot of people use VR for PTSD and it's been shown to be very effective. But at UPenn, we have phantom limb VR. So mm -hmm. for individuals who have lost a limb, the VR simulates having that limb again. Um, and it's, very, it's been shown to be very effective to, less, to, to reduce pain in people who have lost a limb. Now, what's really fascinating about this is that the next level that they have actually proven to be effective is that for people who have lost sensation in a limb, but still have the limb, they've actually been able to refire those synapses and, re and, and regain use of those limbs through this, oh, wow. through this wow. virtual reality simulation. Huh. So VR is actually teaching people to walk again. Like I'm not exaggerating, like actually literally teaching people to walk again. So you know that that's a different brain experience than playing a video, video game on a console. Console video games don't do that, right? Hmm. So that's what I'm interested in is like, if this is really able to like change the way our brain functions, what does that mean for gaming? Yeah, that's fascinating. Yes. Yeah, so wow. 
when you know one of the questions that you know we kind of raised when we were sort of outlining the show uh was the kind of like value of this for students and so mm. like moving it beyond the medical context um maybe we could talk a little bit about the value of teaching games both in general and teaching uh you know ar and vr more specifically and you know, it's, it's a question I've been thinking about in terms of like, you know, designing a course for the spring. Uh, what kinds of games do I want them to play? Why am I teaching a game studies course? Do I want it to be like game studies in the sense of like, here is this academic field or I want to be, you know, more focused on, okay, what can we do when we think about games from a general scholarly or academic perspective? And so... Yeah. You know, for me, part of this has to do with like, okay, what kinds of platforms do I want them to have access to, right? Like, you know, if, if we do some AR, it'll probably be something like Pokemon Go, because even if they don't play it much, they can get a very specific kind of experience of the way in which it means to play even a digital game doesn't necessarily mean sitting down, quote unquote, in front of a television. Um, um, is this in an yeah. English, like, is this? part of your English yeah it's in our English offering. department yeah um and we have Penn State has a uh computer game design program that's interdisciplinary that you know eventually I'm hoping to get this, uh integrated into and so we're also going to have a design component so for example I know that like the very first week of class on a Friday their first design activity is going to be redesigning tic-tac-toe um, to make it oh, so that cool. you can't automatically win if you know, you know, if you're starting doing the starting move. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think about why we study games and why we study specific kinds of games and what the limits are also of like, you know, I'm not going to assign any PS5 or like, you know, Xbox Series X games, even if I'm playing those, and even if I think they're interesting, right? I don't, it's not productive because who knows if any of the students will have, they probably won't. Um, and so just thinking about some of those limits. So, um, and I taught video games a couple of years ago. We have a new gaming certificate in our DTC undergraduate major, which is, uh, it's, it's, it's like an English department, but ultimately we're talking, we're, we're trying to produce students who are able to, um, critique, but also make things with digital technology. That's kind of our basic idea DTC. Um, and so we have this gaming certificate where they have one course, which is the history and theory of video games. And then one course, which is like, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but it's basically how to make sort of really basic video games uh, using, we, we have them use Unity and we have them use different things. So there's sort of, there's some programming in it, but not a lot. Um, so it's interesting because like I, you know, immediately when I, I always sort of like, just because of my background, start with kind of the typical English kind of framework where it's like, these are cultural texts and we're going to analyze them and talk about them in class for what they do. Right. Um, but we know, we know that video games do more than that. They're more than just sort of representations. They actually enact certain things and there's all sorts of scholarship out there that talks about that. And so um, sometimes it's harder for me though to get from here are a bunch of games to play, right? Um, either free games, 
which is what I did for quite a, quite a long time. Right. Like, um, flash games, which is, which are harder to access right now. Um, or sort of really cheap indie games, um, that they can get some kind of experience out of. Um, but it's, but it's interesting because it is this question of like, well, what is it exactly that we're teaching in this class? What is, you know, what's the sort of central goal of it? Uh, yeah, from, I, from my students, the large majority are non-gamers, right? So mm-hmm. if you're talking about a class of 20 students, maybe like five are gamers <laughs> and 15 yeah. are not, right? So for me, it's always about how do I translate the relevance of games to non-gamers, especially those who like really have no interest in being a gamer, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're not looking mm-hmm. to go into the gaming industry. What is the relevance to them? Um, for me, it comes down to storytelling or narrative and problem solving. Mm -hmm. So when you think about twine, for example, right, Mm. you're going to make a twine game. The appeal to teaching that in something like a humanities course is you're teaching decision trees, right? Mm. You're teaching how to build a narrative structure through a a decision tree model, which is like the oldest, (laughs) you know, this is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. going back to, you know, those choose your own adventure novels or you flip to page 87, right? Um, This is not new, but it does make it very concrete because you need to be able to tell the computer what to do so that your narrative progresses the way that you anticipate and that your your audience follows the the trail as, as you want you know, want to have it laid out. Um, that kind of narrative building, that kind of story building and world word, world building, and that kind of problem solving translates to every industry on earth, to every career on earth, to every, really even your, your, your everyday life, right? <laughs> um, that kind of problem solving. So I'll give you a great example. I had a student in my digital publishing class who wanted to be an editor, you know, wanted to edit for a, you know, publisher. She was a fantastic creative writer. Um, in, in that course, I had them design their own virtual or augmented reality games. And I had them create storyboards for those games where they had to write out the narrative frame by frame for their prototype. And in, in that class, I had a local company, Mosaic Learning, who built educational VR games come and judge the final projects. Oh, cool. And um, the winning project got monetary compensation and uh, the students got attribution on the game. And this student who was a creative writer who had no interest in gaming, who wanted to go into editing, ended up applying for the internship, getting it, and they hired her after graduation as their on-staff creative writer. They told me they had interviewed 50 people for that creative writing job and zero applicants were actually viable um, employees for that creative writing job because they got coders, right? They got people who are coders, who are programmers, who are video game players, but who did not understand the, the schematics of creative writing, right? Uh, and how to really solve the problems of narrative. So for me, that's your hook for humanities students is like, it, this is a writing exercise. This mm-hmm. is about writing and research and world building and decision trees and all the things that go into making a great book or a short story. You hear it time and time again from developers when they're being interviewed that, you know, what they look for when they're beginning prototyping or in pre-production for a game is not other games. It's non-game like resources, whether, you know, like, for example, the game control from uh, Remedy Entertainment, um, you know, the 
main touchstone there in their early production process was brutalist architecture, right? And in fact, oh, their right, initial right. hiring, and this, is, this was huge, right? This is their breakout game. They're now making six games right now, right? Their initial hiring was creative writers with an English background who were citing new weird fiction writers like Jeff Vandermeer and China Mieville and former architects who had moved into digital world building, right? Those were their hires like from mm. the beginning. And so thinking about it, I like, really like that. I mean, thinking about it as a space where gaming doesn't just mean video games. It means a space where we interact with all different kinds of media and knowledge forms and creative practices and try to introduce them to each other, right? And see what we can make. I think there's two jobs two career tracks in the humanities that we are seriously neglecting. And that is creative writing for video games and media and voice acting <laughs> for the point. same industries. I think yeah. voice actors and creative writers for emerging technologies are two, two things that we could be training people for in the humanities that we really are, are aren't yet. Um, voice actors are getting unionized. So who knows? It might actually <laughs> be an even better job in like 10 years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're going to, people do, especially as you, as we're talking about something like a VR game or an AR game or an a, 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 ARG game, that could be like, you're talking about playing these games for months, years, for hours on end yeah. that you're immersed in these worlds. They, the writing has to be tight, right? The writing has to be believable and interesting and compelling. Um, one of my favorite games of all time is Portal, right? And when you're, that game could just be a problem-solving game, but it's the narrative yeah. that makes it that makes it addicting, that makes it compelling, right? It's the narrative of like, there's this computer that's controlling this world and the ending credits are the best of all time, right? That song <laughs> at the end, um, you know, the that's what makes Portal great, not just that you're solving problems. So one of the one of the books I really I taught uh, with my video game class, which worked really well, was Anna Anthropy's Rise of the Video Game Zinesters. And I don't know if you know this book, but it's um, really good at, at at sort of getting sort of dispelling the myths that have surround sort of gaming and gamers. And um, Anthropy is really interested in kind of this grassroots sort of zinester type um, world that is emerging. Um, through apps like Twine, right? Where people can create kind of like really, really basic um, stories or experiences um, and, and, and share them with other people. And so um, it's actually really sort of an eye-opening kind of experience for a lot of students. And, and particularly Anthropy is coming from this, not just from, you know, trying to get away from this multi-million dollar sort of corporate model of, of, of game development, but also um, really sort of the politics and the misogyny that can be found in a lot of, a lot of games. And so I think I find that a lot of students, particularly students who don't identify as gamers and who would never even consider, like they may never have played a video game or thought of it in that way, it opens these new sort of like possibilities for them um, to think of gaming in a totally different way. So that's that's kind of a, I think for me, at least in, in my game, in my gaming courses, that's a, that's a useful framework for these types of things. So one of the ways, for some reason, you know, I've been in a few different English departments over the past 
10 years, let's say. And for some reason, I always get tasked with teaching this, like, what is literature course, uh, which is, it's like a gift and a curse <laughs> at the same time. It's a curse because the first time I did it, I, I was required to teach things over a 2,500 year stretch. Um, and my, you know, like I had to go back to like pre-biblical texts and things like that. And my training Aww. like sort of accommodates that and sort of doesn't, but you know, they, they weren't happy with me going back to the 1500s. I had to go back further. Uh, and you know, but the, the gift of this was that, you know, I got used to including a video game section of the course, right? So while the spring's my first time teaching a game studies and video game design course, I've in fact included in other courses really productively. And one of the things that I've often seen is the way students gravitate towards a genre that I think really marks the distinction between at least the stereotypical gamer and a lot of things that games can be, which is the walking sim. Right. The, mm, I think this, mm -hmm. this tag, this label that a lot of developers have kind of embraced as an opening, uh, even though it was used in a kind of derogatory way, especially during moments like gamer game and stuff, right? Where like mm. people were just criticizing walking sims for not really being games. Um, you know, and I taught this what is literature course uh, the most recently uh, this past spring. And lots of students played Gone Home, right? That's that's the thing that I gave them a long list of games and they kind of looked through and there was a lot of reasons for that. One of it was they could play it on their phones. Mm. Um, and while some described like not loving the interface, right? Uh, like moving around was a little awkward on their phone, a little bit easier on an iPad. Um, they still actually really enjoyed it. And while I only told them they had to play games for like an hour here, an hour there, almost every single one of them that played it finished it, right? And maybe they finished it after the course ended. And maybe they finished it, you know, played it in one sitting, but it really opened things up and maybe think about, okay, like this is one of those like experiences of accessibility that we don't always think about, right? We need to think about what are the kinds of skills and prerequisites uh, mm -hmm. and like just, basic knowledge that we associate with gaming that some people just don't have, but you can sort of bridge their way into some of it. And then we think about like, what's actually worth teaching them, right? Like, I don't know if I need to have a stu student play a first person shooter, right? If, if they're into that, I'm happy to have a space for them to write about it, think about it, whatever. But I don't think I need to have them play like Doom Eternal, which is one of the most complex, even first person shooters that's been around lately. But on the other hand, I do want them to be able to navigate a three-dimensional space in some form because then maybe that opens up gone home. Um, and playing that on an iPad is different than playing that on a console. And we yeah. sometimes take for granted, you know, like my partner, for example, uh, was playing Oblivion, like this is like six or seven years or eight years ago, nine years ago, um, whenever it came out and had a really hard time because her last video game she played was on a Super Nintendo. And they didn't have a right analog stick back then. They didn't have analog sticks at all, in fact. Uh, and so just thinking about the kinds of inborn or sort of like ingrained knowledge that we take for granted and the way in which that produces limits, but also maybe opportunities is interesting to me. I see this all the time with VR. If you put a gamer in a VR headset, they take off running. Quite literally. Like literally, right? <laughs> like they know how to use the controllers even though they've never picked them up before, right? Like you've never been in HTC Vive before. I put the controllers in your hands and they just know inherently what to do even though they've never held these controllers before, right? When you put a non-gamer 
into a VR headset. They're sometimes frozen in time. You know, they don't, they don't even know where to start, but you know, what's actually kind of amazing is that I've done a lot of VR workshops with just faculty, no students involved, just faculty members. And so many of the faculty members who had never played a video game before, let alone certainly never put on a VR headset, found it more intuitive because it is mm. working with your actual body mechanics, right? So you want to walk, you walk. <laughs> you want to jump, you jump. You want to pick something up, you pick it up, right? It is, it's, it does mimic your actual in intuitive body mechanics in some different ways. That's also an accessibility problem if your body doesn't work in those intuitive ways, right? Um, lots of interesting questions there, but I do wonder if, if that move towards using things like haptic gloves, haptic feedback backpacks, um, and other wearables is going to change that division, right? Mm. Between gamers and non-gamers. Now I have used the, I've used the haptic feedback backpacks and, um, the trackers and it is like you get to move in space in a very natural way that doesn't require you to understand the uh, the functions of a controller or of buttons or of you know memorizing what <laughs> what thing to press when to do what thing um, mm. you know you know that that classic idea of like bat it's it's very bad when game when the game designer changes what the buttons typically mean. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. um, but in this yes. case with <laughs> VR, it is if you throw away all the rules of what you're used to and instead are using gloves to be your hands and, and you know, a backpack to be your body, you can rewrite the rules in a good way, maybe. It's interesting. Um, I'm going to go back to this question of like um, to what Christian mentioned about about playing Gone Home on phones, because this is a problem that we've had in DTC for years. Um, and I think part of this is just based upon the very poor technological infrastructure of WSU. Um, you know, it used to be we would have computer labs and students would um, go into the lab to do that type of work. Um, and that was something that the university sort of invested in across campus. And once things became more about mobile media and uh, about laptops, um, it was almost like they just decided not to invest in those things and to just let students pick up the price tag. And so what happens in a lot of these situations, and I think part of the difficulty in teaching, especially games, but all sort of like DH slash technical work is that students don't have the hardware um, they, and they can't afford the hardware. Um, they might have something that you can, they can put onto their smartphones maybe. Um, and that's where, you know, sometimes you'll find for me, like a lot of students doing a lot of work through their smartphones, which is very strange to me. And, um, but a reality, I think, and, and something that I think those of us who teach games have to really confront. You know, I, when I was at the CUNY Graduate Center, which is in New York City, you know, it's a 24 campus system, all of which are in New York City. Um, Maura Small and a couple of the librarians did an exhaustive study, and they found that the large majority of our students did all of their work on their smartphones. I mean, wow. all of their research, all of their essay writing, all of their discussion board posts, you name it. Um, and it's because they're on the subway. 
right? They're on the subway for hours and hours and hours a day. If you're commuting from the Bronx to Brooklyn College, you're talking about five, six hours of commuting a day on a subway. So what else are you going to do besides do your work on your on your smartphone, right? Um, and they might not have had personal computers, right? They might have had a shared home computer, um, of or you know they borrow a computer from their from you know someone else in their household. But they since they didn't have a dedicated device outside of their smartphone, they're doing everything on their smartphone. This is where I think we should talk about AR. AR is a game changer, right? Like pun intended, mm. I guess there mm. for, um, for mobile-based gaming. And I am going to say, do not do Pokemon Go or like, sure, maybe, but <laughs> no. What you should be doing is some of the amazing social justice free applications. So I'm going to plug University of Pennsylvania again, but Pen and Slavery is our tour of the University of Pennsylvania that demonstrates our fraught relationship with slavery. Completely student-made, completely student-made experience pen and mm. slavery um and um also museum alive david david attenborough's um basically dinosaurs in your living room right mm. brings the museum to your house instead of going to the museum perfect pandemic um teaching mm. tool right there mm. um and plus who doesn't want to hear david attenborough narrate your living room right i mean right that everyone totally Um, so yeah, museum alive, pen and slavery. Um, there's some really, really amazing AR work going on in the social justice realm. Um, and in the museum realm that takes, you know, 3d modeling, um, and makes it a, 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 an instrument to, to understand our culture, to understand our world, um, to even take it beyond, um, gaming and beyond consumerism. Like I'm sure you all know that you can hold up your Target app, your Ikea app, or your Amazon app and see the couch in your living room, right? Or see the, mm-hmm. the lamp mm-hmm. on your desk, right? That's great use of AR to buy things. I just have a new house, so I'm thinking about that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but you can also use it, right, to you know see a Grecian urn, <laughs> right? And study it and go. One of my favorite experiences I did was at the Cloisters in New York City. Um, They have these tiny wooden beads. I mean, microscopic wooden beads that are intricately carved. And of course, as a patron of the museum, you can't hold them. You can't look at them. You don't have a microscope. So they created an app where you can go inside the bead, right? I mean, and actually experience this artifact in a way like think magic school bus miss frizzle and the magic school bus right you're like going inside the bead um that's to me ar has so much potential to use your phone something that 99.9 percent of college students have according to pew research right and just open up that world to a whole slew of new experiences in an incredibly accessible ways i think that's a great place to actually uh, you know, stop in part just because it's like highlighting what has been so great about having you on this episode, Amanda, which is that you're just reminding us all these different ways that games can not just be accessible, but rewrite what we mean by accessibility, right? Can change what we even mean by like access to games. It doesn't necessarily just mean, you know, getting to play this big AAA game. It might mean like having a different sense of what we mean games are in general, which is just really cool. And I think really cool in the classroom and out of the classroom. So thank you so much for coming on the episode. Yeah, everyone can um, find me on Twitter at Amanda Castro if you want some AR VR 
recommendations. I have a whole spreadsheet of games that I've taught and I'm looking into. So yeah, if you're looking for something to play, let me know.